Turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 is where we'll be this morning. Matthew chapter 10. Thank you, Mark. The uh, secret weapon throat spray for uh, laryngitis days. I wish it tasted good. It does not. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 10 is where we'll be this morning. Now, if I were to walk up to you and said, hey, we are doing a new outreach program and, and want you to lead it. We're going into a neighborhood across town to share the gospel with strangers. Would you do it? Would you be eager and, yeah, okay, let's do it. Awesome. Complete strangers on the street. Let's do it. Awesome. Now, let's say... This was a pretty rough neighborhood, right? And you might get roughed up a little bit for evangelizing. You might get made fun of. You might get mocked. You might get pushed around. Would you still do it? Now, what if I told you that the chances were pretty good you would get mugged, maybe even killed, if you brought the gospel to this neighborhood? Would you still be as eager to do it? <coughs> now, if we're honest, right, our knee-jerk reaction is probably getting less and less excited, right, as the situation gets uh, more and more dangerous, right? Especially when we know what's going to happen ahead of time, we may be less inclined to put ourselves through those kinds of situations, whether for the gospel or not, right? We have this instinct for self-preservation sometimes, don't we? But in the text that we're going to be looking at in the next two weeks in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus essentially tells his disciples this very thing as he continues describing the mission he is sending them on. He tells them that they're going to face persecution from all sides as they spread the gospel. And in this morning's text, Jesus comforts the disciples by promising that the Holy Spirit will be with them as they are given opportunity to bear witness to Christ, a promise that can bring encouragement to us today in our own endeavors for Christ. Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 16, is where we'll be. We're going to read down to verse 25. Uh, but this will be a two-part sermon, basically. We're going to look at 16 through 20 this morning and at 21 through 25 next week. Jesus says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you were to speak or what you were to say, for what you were to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? This is the word of God. Now in our passage last Sunday, the beginning part of Matthew chapter 10, Jesus told the disciples he was going to send them out uh, to preach to the lost sheep of Israel in Jewish Galilee, that one particular region. And as we move into our text this morning, Jesus starts to add more information, telling them 
He is sending them, as verse 16 says, as sheep in the midst of wolves. Things are starting to take a, a, a dark turn here all of a sudden. Right? This is pretty vivid imagery. Wolves attack sheep. Right? We know this. Wolves eat sheep. That's what they do. Sheep, by all accounts, are pretty helpless to the ravages of wolves. Sheep don't have any weapons. They don't have claws. They don't have teeth. They don't have sharp horns. And Jesus' words here really suggest that the disciples will be outnumbered, surrounded by wolves. That's kind of the imagery. Now, this isn't just an image of, of predators and prey, but as one theologian notes, wolves are often described throughout Scripture as enemies of the gospel. Right? When you see that imagery of wolves, it's often people who are seeking to either oppose the gospel or change the gospel. But Jesus is really telling his disciples here that he is sending them on a dangerous mission. They will receive opposition. And not just passive opposition, but hostile, dangerous, violent opposition. And in light of that, in light of what is coming, Jesus has some more instructions for the 12 here. He tells them in the second half of verse 16 that they are to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Again, more animal imagery here. Wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Now, the snake in Genesis 3.1 is referred to as the, the craftiest, the most clever of all the animals, right? And Jesus is making reference to that in, in a way here. The disciples, likewise, are to be wise, discerning, cautious, crafty, in seeking to preserve their lives if possible. Now, they shouldn't be deceitful. They shouldn't be dishonest, right? But shrewd, shrewd. And there's a story in church history of a, a man named Athanasius, way back in the 4th century, right? Way, way, way long ago. And uh, he was uh, being hunted down because he was uh, contending for the doctrine of the Trinity. And so soldiers were out looking for him. He's paddling on a boat down the river. Uh, soldiers are coming up the river. And they say, hey, have you seen Athanasius? And Athanasius says, well, he went that way. And, uh, right, so he's, he's not lying to them. He's not being dishonest, but he's being shrewd. He's being shrewd. He's being clever. Now, the disciples uh, don't need to go looking for persecution, in other words. It will come to them. And if possible, it's not bad to avoid persecution. On the other hand, Jesus tells them to be innocent as doves, right? Doves as an animal are a symbol of purity, of, of blamelessness, of innocence. The disciples, in the same way, of course, should not use ungodly or unrighteous means to escape persecution or to get the upper hand on their, their opposers. But they should be pure, holy, blameless in their conduct, while at the same time exercising wisdom and craftiness in their mission. In other words, they shouldn't sacrifice godliness for the sake of their well-being. But Jesus goes on in verse 17 to describe more in detail the persecution that they're going to face from those in authority. And really, this first chunk here, 16 to 20, is about the persecution that the 12 will face from authorities, both Jewish and Gentile rulers. And when we look at verse 17, we see something kind of interesting. And it becomes apparent that Jesus is not speaking to them here in this part of Matthew 10 about their upcoming short-term preaching trip. Uh, no, what we realize when we look at verse 17 and 18 is Jesus is describing what will happen to them in their missionary efforts after he has arisen into heaven after his resurrection. 
right? This really, these verses 17 and 18 are about the events in the book of Acts and beyond, as we'll see in a moment. Jesus tells the disciples, beware of men, right? This is not a feminist slogan, right? Jesus is simply saying, your main source of opposition is going to come from human beings. Human beings, it will be people that oppose you. And this doesn't discount the reality of spiritual warfare, of course, but simply that the greatest direct threat that the apostles are going to face shall come from darkened, rebellion, humanity, right? Human beings, which, of course, fallen humanity is under Satan's influence, right? So we see both there. But the direct actor of opposition is going to be human beings, Jesus says. And we see a description of what these sinful people in positions of power will do to the apostles. Again, these are not things we see in the Gospels prior to the ascension of Christ. They're the things we see in the book of Acts. Now, you know, it was kind of strange to us because in our culture, in our time, we're very linear, right? We like chronological timelines. The Bible does not work like that all the time. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Jesus very often mixes near events and far events in the same conversation, right? Uh, and the Old Testament prophets do this very thing, right? They talk about what's happening now, what's happening far off, but they often end up blurred together. And we'll see this in Matthew 24 when we talk about the Olivet Discourse, right, later on. Just like the, the Old Testament prophets, these disciples will face persecution from their own countrymen, specifically Jewish leaders, we see in the first part of 17. Jesus tells them that uh, they will be delivered over to courts and flogged in where? The synagogues. Flogged in the synagogues, right? This is an explicitly Jewish context here that Jesus is referring to. Now, the courts would have referred to Jewish legal courts. Uh, these courts existed in every town where there was a synagogue. Jesus is describing how the disciples will be put on trial and charged with a religious crime for their missionary work. Basically charged with heresy. But even worse than that, he tells them that they will be flogged in the synagogues by their fellow Jews. They're going to be beaten and flogged by the Jewish religious leaders specifically. And those condemned by the synagogue courts would generally be flogged with a, a leather whip. 26 times on the back, 13 times across the front, 39 in total. Now, the Apostle Paul actually refers to this in 2 Corinthians 11, 24, when he says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one, 39. Right? This is the kind of flogging that Paul would experience. And as we look through history, we do see that the Jewish leaders would be the primary persecutors in the very early days of the church. Again, we see this throughout the book of Acts, like in Acts chapter 4. Turn there with me for a moment, Acts chapter 4. We will be jumping in and out of the book of Acts as we see Jesus' predictions here come true. Acts chapter 4. Luke writes this, he says, As the apostles were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, the number of the men came to about 5,000. <clears> so we see that the apostles here, namely Peter and John, they've gone into the temple uh, they've performed a miraculous healing of, of the lame man just before this in Acts chapter 3. 
And now they're telling everybody about Jesus. You want to know how we healed this guy? Let me tell you about Jesus and his power. But as we read, the Jewish leaders despised this. They were greatly annoyed, right? They were greatly annoyed, and they arrest Peter and John. And what happens next, as we look down to verse 17, is really the trial of these two men before the religious court. The leader said to themselves, they say, In order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Right? So John and Peter are brought before the court. They're charged, don't do this again. Don't talk about Jesus anymore to these people. Of course, John and Peter believe it's more important to obey God, and so they continue to preach. And so we turn over to Acts chapter 5, and what do we see in verses 17 and 18? Right? They go uh, back into the temple preaching. And in verse 17, we read, The high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, right, a party of religious leaders, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. So we see that Peter and John go back, they continue to preach, they're arrested again by the Jewish leaders, an angel comes, releases them, they go back to the temple. Now you've got to admire the, the courage of these men, the commitment of these men, Right? They go back again and again and again to preach and teach. And the Jewish leaders, again, are furious. This is the third time they're having to deal with this. And so they bring them before the council. We look down at verse 27 of chapter 5. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. In other words, you're blaming us for the crucifixion of Jesus. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his, as his right hand, as leader and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Again, the court deliberates, and again, they charge the apostles not to speak in the name of Jesus. They are enraged. We look down to verse 40, and we see that they beat the apostles before they release them. Probably the flogging that Jesus is talking about here. And this pattern continues throughout the book of Acts. We see it happen again and again and again and again and again. But one thing to notice here, one thing to consider... Jesus knows, he's fully aware that the Jewish leaders are going to respond this way. He's making a prediction about it. He's prophesying about it right now, right? He knows most of the Jewish people will not receive him or his message. He knows that the disciples will be rejected by their own religious leaders, but does that stop him from sending them anyway? Does it stop Jesus from sending the disciples to bring the gospel to people who he knows are going to reject it? Does Jesus view it as a waste of time? No, he does not. In fact, God sends the gospel to people he knows will reject it all the time. 
Because all people have a responsibility to hear and believe the gospel. Whether they'll accept it or not, all people are accountable to that message and accountable to faith in Christ. But even so, to read about this response, it's tragic, isn't it? That the people of Israel, who God had been so patient with for so long, who God had sent prophet after prophet after prophet, and now has sent his own son, that they would so vehemently reject the one that God sent to be their Messiah and their King, the one who had come to redeem them. There's a note of sadness here. But it's not going to be only the Jewish rulers that persecute the disciples. As we look at verse 18, we see that they will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. We see that the disciples are going to face opposition from Jewish and Gentile authority. Jesus tells them they're going to be dragged before not just synagogue councils and courts, but governors and kings. Now, more often than not, these would be Gentile rulers, Roman governors, provincial kings like, like King Herod. And in fact, we see this very thing in Acts chapter 12. Just turn over there briefly, Acts chapter 12. The church has been growing. There have been more churches planted. But tragedy strikes in Acts chapter 12. Reading in verse 1, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. And we see what Jesus describes in verse 18 happening here. King Herod kills James. He arrests Peter, persecuting the very ones that Jesus is speaking to, right? Peter and James are both there hearing these words in Matthew chapter 10. And as we look at the end of the book of Acts, right, we see that the Apostle Paul, who is not one of the twelve, but nonetheless he is an apostle, he's brought to the Roman governor Felix. He makes this defense of his faith. He's brought before King Agrippa and his wife Bernice. Again, Jesus is speaking prophetically about what's going to happen. And we see it all occurring in the book of Acts. But Jesus also tells these twelve that this persecution they're going to endure at the hands of these rulers is for my sake, he says, for his sake, on his account. The twelve will be brought before these rulers because of their association with Christ. If they kept that a secret, if they kept it on a down low, if they made no identity with him, if they didn't claim to be Christians, they wouldn't be going before these rulers. What would be the point? Why would they be there? But no, Jesus says it is because of my sake. And this phrase, for my sake, Uh, used in the context of the disciples of Jesus experiencing certain things, undergoing certain things, certain sufferings for the sake of Christ. That appears many times throughout the New Testament. And it underscores the reality, brothers and sisters, that the disciples of Christ, whether the twelve or whether you and me, are intimately and forever linked with our Savior. If you are a Christian, your life is for His sake. And whatever you go through, in a way, is for 
his sake, to bring him glory. <clears throat> it's because the twelve are identified with Christ that they're persecuted. And ultimately, they are suffering for his name. <clears throat> but the apostles, interestingly, in Acts chapter 5, after all these horrible things have occurred, they count it as a joyful thing to be counted as worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. An honor to suffer for his sake. But it's important to note, too, that Jesus makes very clear that's the basis of persecution. Right? Our identity with Christ, our, our association with him. If people treat us wrongly because we're jerks, right, or we cut them off on the road and we happen to be Christians, that's not persecution. Right? People doing bad things to us, that's not persecution. Being persecuted because we are Christians, that is what Jesus is talking about here. And this persecution is not purposeless. <clears throat> it's not wicked people simply running amok and hurting Christians, right? Uh, Jesus tells the, the 12 here, the disciples, there's a very important opportunity that they have here as they are dragged before these rulers. They have opportunity to bear witness to them, Jesus says. Remember what, what John and Peter said to the council. We have to talk about what we've seen and heard. That's what it means to bear witness. John would write later on in his life as an old man in 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that's what the apostles talked about. What they had seen, heard, touched. Regarding Christ. Regarding Christ. The apostles will get to describe things they have seen and heard and the reality of what God has done through Christ as witnesses to it. Right? They're not going before these rulers and saying, well, let me, let me tell you about the main theological points of the Christian faith. Let me, let me give you a pamphlet about Christianity. That's not what they're doing. They're going before them and saying, this is what we've seen and heard. We were there. We were there. That's what they're doing. And we see this in all of the apostolic sermons throughout the book of Acts, from Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, to Stephen's uh, sermon before he's stoned in Acts chapter 7, to Paul's sermons in the latter half of Acts. And in fact, Paul bears witness in a wonderful way, right? We have this great snapshot of this in Acts 26, when he's brought before King Agrippa. Turn there briefly. Acts 26. Now, Paul has been bounced around a little bit. He's been transferred out of the care of Felix the governor, and now he is uh, in the care of Agrippa and Bernice. And he is basically given permission by King Agrippa to speak for himself, to make a defense, to make an apology for the Christian faith. And here's what Paul says in verse 12. Right? He, he spends time talking before this about his life in Judaism, how he persecuted the church. <clears throat> and here's what he says in verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. 
And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout the, all the region of Judea, and also the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Right? That's Paul bearing witness, saying, this is what I have seen. This is what I have heard. This is what I am doing. This is the reality. I'm testifying to this before you, King Agrippa. And what an amazing thing that is, right? It wasn't easy, I'm sure, to get an audience with King Agrippa. Right? If you just rolled into town and said, hey, I have this really cool new religion and I want to talk to King Agrippa about it, yeah, right, that's not going to happen. No way. And yet here, through persecution, Paul is given a chance to stand before one of the most powerful men in the region and tell him about Christ. Isn't that amazing how God works? And why, why does this intense persecution come from these rulers? Well, Psalm 2 tells us that... Uh, the nations and the kings of the nations of the earth are inherently bent in rebellion against Christ because they are threatened by any king who would rule over them. They don't want to submit to his rule and his reign. Of course, we see this in the book of Acts, right? This persecution that comes from these rulers. We see King Herod threatened by the kingship of Christ even when Christ is a baby. We see it today in many of the things our own government does and legislates with sexual ethics, war, abortion, opposing Christ in those, those actions. As Psalm 146.3 says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. Don't put your trust in these rulers, he says to the twelve. Beware of them. Beware of them. Well, brothers and sisters, we should not put our trust in our rulers either in that extent. Sure, we can trust them to a degree. But at the same time, we must understand that their, their main goal is not to exalt Christ. Their main goal is not to facilitate the spread of the gospel, right? And in many cases, it is to oppose it. And in the next two verses in Matthew chapter 10, 19 and 20, Jesus directs the attention of the apostles to put their hope in God, who will not abandon them or forsake them, even in these dark and dangerous moments. Now imagine with me that you're in this scenario. Right? That you're brought before the most powerful person around. A person who has the ability to kill and torture you and your family. And the words that you could say might mean the difference between life and death. It's a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure, right? Uh, I'd be pretty anxious. I'd be pretty nervous. Uh, even under good circumstances, I don't always say the right thing. You know, ask my wife. She'll, she'll testify to that. But before somebody who could kill you, I mean, that's... That's high stakes. 
Sometimes we feel anxious about talking to our neighbor about Jesus, much less a powerful ruler. From a natural perspective, I can imagine the disciples might feel a little anxious about hearing this. We're going to go before who to do what? But I love that Jesus understands this weakness, and he addresses it. This potential anxiety in verse 19. He says, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are going to speak or what you are to say. Why not? How can Jesus say this? Well, he has good reason. Look at the next part of the verse. For what you are to say, what you need to say, will be given to you in that hour. In that moment of high stress, right? That moment of, of risk. When the disciples are before these rulers, these kings of the earth. Jesus tells them, don't be anxious. Don't panic. You're not going to need to figure out what to say all by yourself. What you need to say for God's purposes will be given to you. And Jesus gets more specific in verse 20. He says, it's not you who speak. You're there just as the, just as the, the, the megaphone. It is the spirit of your Father speaking through you. It's the spirit of your Father speaking through you. Now, what a comfort that would be to the disciples, right? What a comfort that would be. This doesn't mean that God turns them into puppets or something, right? But rather, the Holy Spirit would perfectly direct each word from them in how they bear witness about Christ before these rulers. Jesus is promising them, God will not desert you, disciple. He's not going to leave you to figure this out all by yourself. He will be with you, even in persecution. And in a way, he'll be with you more than ever. And again, when we turn through the book of Acts, when we flip through it, we see this taking place. Back in Acts chapter 4, when Peter's brought before the Jewish leaders, we read that he's filled by the Holy Spirit. To the point, his, his, his response to them is so uh, spiritually inspired to the point that they are shocked that this uneducated fisherman could speak in such a way. Stephen in Acts 7.55, preaching to the Jewish leaders and crowds, is said to be full of the Holy Spirit. And in John 14, Jesus promises the twelve that the Holy Spirit will come and lead them and help them, and that's what we see happening in the book of Acts. And of course, at the end of Matthew 28, what does Jesus tell his disciples? I will be with you, even to the end of the age. How? Through the Holy Spirit. Spirit. And there's two comforts here that Jesus gives his disciples. The first, of course, is that the Spirit will guide them. He'll give them the words they need to say, right? That is quite a relief. That the Spirit of God is there with them, helping them. But he gives them another comfort too. It is the Spirit of their Father. He's reminding them that even as they're going through this persecution, this difficulty, that they have a heavenly Father who is not only aware of this situation, He is allowing it, but He has got His boundaries around it. It will not go further than He wills, and He has a good purpose in that situation. He reminds them of their heavenly Father's love and care for them, even in persecution. Now, the apostles, of course, are used in a special way, right? There's 12 of them. They had a unique ministry, a unique place in church history. Uh, and so we need to be careful about appropriating this promise carelessly to ourselves, right, in, in quite the same way. Right? Uh, the Holy Spirit worked through the apostles in a unique way. 
right? They are authors of Scripture. The things they said are inscripturated for us and inspired, right? And so we, we can't quite claim that same level of inspiration, right? If we are brought before somebody or if we end up in a situation where somebody's mocking us for our faith and we bear witness about Christ, um, we need to be careful of presuming that everything we say is the Holy Spirit's work, right? Got to be careful. But that being said, as Christians, do we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us? Yes, we do. As Christians, do we have a Heavenly Father who will not abandon us in those moments when we're called to bear witness about Christ? We do have a Heavenly Father who will not leave us or forsake us. And, and, and though it may not be to the level of the apostles, He absolutely guides our thoughts and our words. He does give us that perfect in during a conversation to bring Christ and the gospel to the forefront. So He doesn't abandon us either. If He puts us in a situation where we have opportunity to talk about Christ, do you think He's going to let us just figure it out all by ourselves? I don't think so. I don't think so. Now, at this point in our lives, right, we're not facing this kind of persecution that the apostles are. Believers in other parts of the world, they are. But in America, we are not. That might change. We don't know. But what Christ promises his disciples is that in their labor for him, their suffering of persecution for his sake, he will be with them in the middle of it. Brothers and sisters, even in our smallest gospel conversation, God is with us. He is with us too. Just as the disciples will be helped by God, so will we, though perhaps in a, a different degree. So we have to ask, do you trust God to be with you when you bear witness to Christ before others? Are you reminded of that in your endeavors to share the gospel with the last? Or, or perhaps is not trusting God to be with you in those moments something that has been holding you back from bearing witness about Christ? So be reminded, be encouraged, take heart. He is with us. He will help us. Your Lord is with you as you speak of him to the world, whether before rulers or to your children. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for your words to your 12 disciples. And that in those words, Lord, contain for us our encouragements. Father, we pray that you would help us to be mindful of your care for us. And Lord, if, if the most persecution that we face is somebody mocking the name of Christ, Lord, even in that, may we be reminded that you are with us. And Father, if it is your will that we would suffer worse for the sake of Jesus our Lord, may we be mindful that you are with us. May we rest on your promises never to leave us, never to abandon us, Lord, but that you would use that for your sake and your glory. So help us to trust you, Lord, in our evangelism. Lord, in the ways that you have given us opportunity to bear witness about Christ. And Lord, we see in this text, there is no guarantee that we will not be persecuted. And in fact, the rest of your word uh, tells us that. So we should expect that. But Lord, may that not discourage us from speaking of Christ or associating ourselves with him. But may we count his glory, the eternal reward we have in him, and the honor of suffering for his name as something that is worthy, Lord, of enduring that. 
Please be with us, we pray, Lord. Help us to trust you. Be reminded of your presence and your love for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.